This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well welcome once again to this uh, Church Society podcast. Lee seems to have taken to describing the podcast as coffee with Chris so perhaps I shall retaliate and say lunch with Lee. Uh, What we're doing today uh, because Lee and I, as you'll be aware, if you've ever watched Church Society videos as such fine preachers ourselves, we thought we would talk and give the rest of the world the benefit of our wisdom whilst we talk about preaching. Preaching is something which is at the core of our ministry. It's the core of the calling, really, of uh, ministry. And yet it's something which, well... Lee, (laughs) perhaps we might talk about some of the pitfalls which we're all a little bit prone to falling into when we preach. Yeah, I mean, how to be a better preacher is a question I often, you know, ask Mm. myself. How can I be a better preacher? It's not because I'm a perfect one, because I really am not, but I want to be a better preacher myself. Um, And so I preach to myself about this topic. Um, I've got sort of 10 points that I've, I wrote down once to Excellent. remind ten myself. Point sermon. These are the 10 things I, I ought to do and not do to be a better preacher. Um, the first one I put down is reflect the text. Reflect the text. So read the text, reread the text you're, um, you're supposed to be preaching on and try to mirror the text itself in the tone and colour and texture of the talk. I'm not there to try and make the text interesting with my own stuff. I'm supposed to be reflecting the text itself and what God says in the Bible Mm. to the people. So that's the first thing I sort of written down as the point to make myself a better preacher. Try to reflect the text itself, not what's in my own head. And are you normally choosing your own text. I mean, my, my parish is a lectionary based, so I, I get a text present or three texts uh, presented to me each Sunday. Are you normally choosing your texts? Um, sometimes I do, but sometimes I, as a, I'm a, a sort of itinerant preacher these days, so I get asked to go and preach at other people's churches um, or at my own, and I'm just given a text in some of those cases. Occasionally they say, come preach on whatever you want. Um, so obviously there's a three-point talk about how you ought to join church society. Um, I'm kidding. Indeed. Um, <laughs> um, but it, often I'm being given a text. Um, or in those liturgical sorts of churches, you sometimes find they're using the lectionary. So there are two or three set readings um, that I can just look up that lots of churches will be using. And so, uh, you know, I could just be finding out this is randomly what I'm preaching on this week is something different from what I had last week. Um, you might not be going through a series um, of expository sermons. So you can do that if you're losing the lectionary. There's often a way of um, uh, using the lectionary to do a consecutive series because it does move through the Gospels mm. consecutively through some of the epistles over a period of weeks. So you can sometimes do that. I can remember once preaching, I can't remember what passage it was now, but the, the lectionary reading had omitted 
some verses in the middle, oh. which clearly the, the compilers didn't like for whatever uh, reason. It probably talked yeah. about judgment and nasty things like that. And I, uh, I stood up and, and said, I'm going to preach to you on the forbidden bits of this reading and just preached on the text that was cut out because <laughs> I thought I need to make the point that we should do the whole lot. So People reflecting- like that, did they? Yes, they like yeah, the hidden bits. Oh, it's yes. forbidden. It's the secret parts. <laughs> the yes, secret good. parts. Yes, <laughs> the secret source of Anglicanism. The, the Bible so if, they didn't want you to read. Here's exactly. the text they, the you, church doesn't want you to look at. <laughs> this is an entirely now off topic, but I've often thought it would be really interesting to go through the lectionary to compile all the bits that are cut out of the lectionary yes. oh, yeah, and yeah. do precisely that. These are the doctrines which are being hidden from you, because. Yes there's such a strong sense of trying to avoid certain issues or certain things, which is, uh, is extraordinary. And the other mm. thing they do, which irritates me is that they'll, uh, the, the classic to my way of thinking of this is on the, uh, par- the withered fig tree in, in Mark's gospel. That oh, when yeah. we get to that each, every three years, they remove it from the context where it's other, either sides of the, the temple. And so you lose what Mark is doing with that passage because Mark is always, when he sandwiches, when he puts something at one side, then you go off into another incident and then you come back to the first thing again, they always interpret each other. I mean, it's a common rhetorical device is what Matthew's doing. But you break the link and you break the interpretation if you do that. So in a sense, I suppose, if I try to now shoehorn this back onto topic again, uh, in a sense, it's what you're saying about you paying attention to the text is part of that is looking at the context it's in as well. It's yes. not ripping it out of its wider context. It's not ripping it out of the narrative of Scripture. It's trying to put the whole thing back into where it was. And I think uh, we will obviously want to read your commentary on Mark's Gospel when you've written it and published it in a couple of years' time uh, mm. to help us with that. And that's the second point, actually, on my sort of Ten Commandments of how to be a better preacher. It's use the commentators. Um, obviously, I'm going to do the work on the text, but use the commentators because... That's the sort of hermeneutical humility that I need, that I don't know all the answers. I can't work it all out. The commentators will help me because they've looked at it and thought about it carefully. They will see things I don't see. If I use older commentaries, that's quite helpful because there's a Catholicity about that, a universal church thing about that, where I'm going to make sure that my interpretation is not completely skewy compared to what people have done with this text in the past. I sometimes use foreign commentary, so not just something that's written by people who are male, pale and stale from white middle-class Western backgrounds. I've recently read an African commentary on Ephesians for some stuff I was doing on Ephesians. That was really helpful because it helped me see cultural blind spots and um, different ways of looking at it. They also sometimes show me systematic theological questions that I hadn't considered that arise out of this text. Um, that is very helpful. And, you know, there are resources that they might send me to. So use the commentaries. Don't be afraid of that or ashamed of doing mm. that. And I think it is also is part of that is investing in the commentaries as well, which they're not cheap often, although the older ones can be a bit cheaper. And of course, the much older ones are usually available freely online somewhere, yes. scanned in on archives.org yeah. or something. So but many I think good I, things online. Yeah. I, I used to say to, in an angle, I used to teach on a, a training course um, and I used uh, for, for Anglican clergy. And I used to say there, you know, we go around a three-year cycle on the, on the Gospels and our lectionary. When you're in Mark, but by a second, a third, a fourth commentary on Mark. So every time you go round, build up the commentaries 
on Mark. The other place I, I often find myself looking, uh, as well as the commentaries, is I'll go to a systematic theology, um, uh, usually a large one that's a little bit more comprehensive, like Barvink's four volumes or whatever, and look up the passage in the scripture index there, because mm-hmm. often that's quite a way of seeing where it fits into a wider systematic theology. Yeah. Yeah. That's really so helpful. It's a, a good I way think, just pinching into that. The, the next thing I've got in my Ten Commandments thing is answer people's questions in your preaching. So I might have my own questions when I approach a text to, to prepare a sermon on it. Um, what does this verse mean? And so on. But other people have got questions when they're reading it. It's people in the congregation, they're asking, how does that apply to me? Why, why should I be bothered about that? Why should I listen to that? Um, and to, to really answer the questions that will be in my congregation's mind as they hear the text read um, and what questions will come to them, I need to be listening to them, loving the congregation as much as I can. If, especially if I'm just an itinerant, I need to think quite carefully and ask the, the, the vicar, you know, what is your congregation like? What are their particular issues at the moment? But I need to be answering the questions that will arise in their minds when they hear that reading so that my sermon really is addressing those. Um, it Maybe they're not the right questions to be asking, uh, and I need to be moving them to be asking different and better questions, perhaps, but their questions are important because that's where they're at. Eugene Lowry wrote a book back in the day called the... What was it called? The Homiletical Plot, I think it was called. Uh, a slim volume. It was great. It still is great. And he, basically what he did is he was trying to... He analysed sitcoms, uh, not sitcoms, soap operas. And he was trying to see how they would grab people's attention and keep them going over the adverts particularly so they'd come back. (laughs) And he reckons, and and I've used this pattern an awful lot, it's kind of stuck in my mind uh, at times, that you, the first thing you do is you introduce a point of tension. Why is it that at the beginning of the walking on the water passage that it says that Jesus forced his disciples into the boat? Then you make the problem um, bigger. I wish I hadn't started this now because I'm trying to think of Mark's walking on the water. Uh, so you make the problem bigger. And you know why is it? That, and then why was it that when they were on the sea and they were on the Sea of Galilee and they were struggling all this time that Jesus then waited on the shore for hours? He said he saw them at this watch and he went out to them on that watch. Why is he doing that? So you're raising questions. The first thing you do is introduce the tension. Second thing, increase the tension. Third thing you think is you give a clue. Well, maybe the answer to this is what we see what is in the words that Jesus says when he sees them. What does he say? Because it's bizarre. He says he's about to pass them by. So was he not even going there to them? Was he just going out for a stroll on the lake? Was he just passing them by to get to the other side? You give a clue to say, well, maybe it's something in that phrase. You disclose the answer. Well, passing by in the Old Testament is always used as God reveals his glory to Moses or reveals his glory, therefore, to um Elijah, the same word, passing by, is used in both. You anticipate the results, that's the final bit. And this therefore means that we see that Jesus, who says, I am, do not be afraid, I am, is divine. And that's why he forced them onto the water, because he wanted to demonstrate his divinity by passing them by as he walked on the water. So that's an example of the way that that works. But it's a way of doing what you've said, taking the, um, the point of tension the question that are going to be asked and just not not only not being afraid to go there in preaching but it's doubling down 
you're really wanting to make the question really pressing for people mm. as long as you know you can answer it <laughs> later on in the yes. sermon. <laughs> but but I, what I really enjoyed about that is because I've, I've used that on a few sermons, is trying to make it in such a way that the penny drops for the congregation just before you get there yourself. Because that way mm. they're doing the work with the text, the penny's dropping for them just before you, you can disclose the answer. And the ones that I've felt happiest with on that model that's happened you can see that they get they've got there just before you have that's the, the best way of doing it anyway, what i like I about dis- what you just did as well was that there was a structure to that um and oh, yeah. i think that's my next thing is organize your sermon because so many sermons are just a sort of meandering wandering structureless reflection and fourthly and fifthly well not even that i mean i would rejoice in fourthly or fifthly i don't mind i read puritan sermons that have 20 fourthly um 20 fifthly in them but it's just any kind of structure because it's hard to listen to somebody just meandering through something without having you know my first point is this my second point is this my third point is this um or a narrative structure as you gave us there in your comments on mark which just made me want to read your commentary on mark even more um <laughs> but i think that kind of thing and a structure doesn't have to be three points beginning with p um and you don't necessarily have to give it away up front and have it on the service sheet or on a screen or something but you can do that that can help people to listen um, but it should not be boring, not a boring structure. Make them the structure itself teach something. Um, so it's not just a bland abstract um, word or something, but it teaches something in the headings for your three points or four points. And the points should also reflect the passage, of course. Uh, if the passage makes two points, have two points. If the, mas- if the passage makes four mm. points, don't cram it into three, just for the sake of a three-point sermon. Mm. Um, and sometimes make the structure completely arresting make it different so i remember preaching on ephesians 4 1 to 16 a well-known passage about you know the christ giving gifts to the church uh, and that leading to building us up for the work of ministry which leads to the, the the church being firm and being able to be stable in the face of uh, false teaching buffeting it around and then we will all be mature and so on and there's a structure and a progression there and i thought actually if i just teach it forwards that, that will make the point. But if we do it backwards, uh, and I taught through the passage backwards from verse 16 back to, to verse 1. And all the way through, of course, I'm showing how it works forwards and backwards uh, so that, that that structure gets into people's minds. And just by mm. teaching it backwards, I think you can do that. I'm not messing with the text, but my pedagogical method um, is to teach it backwards just to to make people pay more attention uh, and to see the connections that are made forwards in the text. I think the other great benefit of a strong structure is that it it makes it much easier to preach, if this is what you want to do, of course, but much easier to preach without notes because what you're remembering Mm. in your mind Mm. is the structure. You're not necessarily remembering every single word you're going to say in between, but um, you've got the structure in your head yeah. Uh, which give, so you know where you're heading, where you know where you're finishing. Um, mm-hmm. And the other great benefit of a strong structure as well is it does mean you do finish the sermon because that's the other problem. You, you, you're listening to preachers and they're sort of coming into land and then they go off for another circuit and you have these sort of false endings and there's nothing worse than sort of a sermon you think is, is never going to land this sermon. I can remember <laughs> once you talk about your structures. Yeah. We, this is back in the days of the overhead projector when that was cutting oh. edge and that was going to change the world. And <laughs> I can remember a sermon. So 
you'd print off the your headings onto a, a acetate, an A4 acetate, and you'd put it up on the screen, and then you cover it with a bit of paper. And as you went through the points, you'd, the, <laughs> the paper would be slid down to reveal the next point. Classic stuff. Yeah. And I can remember once a sermon where. Um, he, he did this, revealed the first point, preached. And then we got to, and said, and the next point, and the paper slipped down about six millimetres. And we thought, <laughs> oh no, we're going to be here all morning. You know, how many points <laughs> has he got hidden behind this thing? So, but I, I don't know whether you use, see, I don't, I, I used to use a projector way back in the day as I was beginning in ministry to put the points up. And I ditched that quite early on because I found it was being distracting for congregations, yeah. I mean, do you? And I use think too projectors? much, too much use of projectors and stuff can be very distracting. And some people, they spent such a long time and effort and amount of money on installing screens into the church that they feel they have to use them at every single moment and for every occasion, and they have to have a picture or a cartoon or a joke or a meme um, or some words or something. They have to do it, um, and it, it it's not necessary. You're teaching in words. And people can understand words and all the other stuff and it can go wrong. And, you know, I hate it when someone says, and, and now we'll put this picture on and can you go to the next picture? The next picture? Oh, no, no. Oh, no, it's gone wrong. Um, and then you're completely distracted because the pictures have gone wrong or it's not quite right or something's happened with the technology. So I think it's got to be used sparingly. It can be used to good effect, but don't think you have to or that you ought to um, every time. I think one thing this helps, my fifth point on my Ten Commandments is remember your authority as a preacher. Okay. Because God speaks through preaching to his people who are gathered together. You know, the Helvetic Convention sa uh, Confession says um, that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Mm. Uh, and I, I, that's a, a common Puritan and 17th century Reformed Orthodox thing to say. Mm. John Owen says something similar in his commentary on Hebrews 4, uh, as I recall, that, you know, there's as much reverence due to the word preached as there is to the word written. That's very strong. It sounds wrong <laughs> in some ways. But yes. um, when, when you look at Paul preaching in, um, in Athens, for example, at the end of his sermon, I suppose you could call it, um, to the Areopagus, to, on Mars Hill. He, he says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's mm. what we're doing when we're preaching. We're, com we're commanding people to repent. Don't just invite people to consider a question. I mean, sometimes that's appropriate. But actually, you have authority as a preacher. You're speaking on behalf of God. And God commands don't forget that. We should exhort and command and admonish as well as teach. Um, and that's easier to do if, as you said earlier, you're keeping to the text. Yeah. Because I mean, I've, I've uh, with my lot, stood up before now and said, look, I, I think you're lovely people, but let me tell you what St Paul thinks about you. You know, in a <laughs> sense, you can, you can, if you're referring yeah. back to the text, yeah. and, you know, Paul's saying this or whatever, then it makes it easier because, I mean, the job of the herald mm. is to proclaim what you've been yes. told to proclaim. And if it's clear yes. that you're heralding the gospel because it's there in the reading, it's not and coming you are, from you. You are a herald, a proclaimer. Um, you're not just a teacher. That's my next point, which is don't just ah, teach. Yes. You know, we're not just Bible teachers. That was a very common way of describing it when I was thinking about ministry. Be a Bible teacher. Um, mm. And that's a good and noble and honourable thing to teach the Bible. But if you're a preacher, 
you are not just there to teach. You are there to preach, to proclaim with passion, with exhortation. It is different to a lecture. You're not mm. meant to be just giving us your exegetical notes from this week's study. Though, of course, your sermon should contain exegesis. It should be based on exegesis. But the Bible doesn't just teach us. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. Peter doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Isaiah and Moses don't do that. They teach in order to exhort, correct, rebuke, encourage, and all these active um, things. So don't just teach. Um, I think early in my ministry, I was very much given to lecturing the congregation because I knew things because I'd read the commentaries and done the study and I wanted to now lecture you on that. But it's not just about that. Don't just teach. Preach. One of my tutors, absolutely, one of my tutors would often say, um, would, the way in Baptist ministry you train is you're preaching every Sunday, uh, at least once, usually twice, and you also have to prepare a sermon for every Wednesday for the, this is the college I trained mm -hmm. at, for, mm -hmm. for the other students to pull apart. So that, that was how we, we did things. And a common criticism was there's too much study in the sermon. In other words, the work you're showing to the congregation, that's what you did in the study, but you're in the pulpit now. It's a different medium. Mm. It's a different thing that you're doing. And I think you're exactly right. That you, we can, because let's be honest, in many ways it's less embarrassing and it's easier to teach than it is to preach. Because when you're preaching, you're having to sort of put more of yourself into it, more energy into it. Yes. But you're also calling often for some sort of response. And that's, yes. you know, that, that can yes. be seen as a in good, polite, good, polite sort of English culture. That's slightly vulgar. You know, we don't yes. do that sort of thing, old chap. So yeah. I think it is easier to slip into teaching. Yeah, but I'm a northerner and a brash northerner, so <laughs> I can do that sort of thing. You know, some people, yeah. when, I, when I go places to preach, they'll say, and after this song, we're, um, we're going to sing this song now. And then afterwards, Lee is going to teach us the Bible. And I always mm -hmm. want to jump up at that point and say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to yes. come and teach you the Bible. I am going to preach the Bible. I'm going to <laughs> preach what the text says to you. I'm not just going to teach you. I'm not just going to try and fill your head. I'm going to try and move your heart and your will by filling your head. Um, but the other things are in included. And Indeed. I guess that, that leads on to the next thing which I've got, which is don't distract from the text itself because the text should be king uh jesus should mm -hmm. be king and the word is his scepter by which he rules so don't distract from the text um and we we do sometimes fall into this as preachers we have too many stories um anecdotes we feel we have to illustrate every point we've made when actually just some interesting word ways of putting it um, would be an illustration in itself i don't have to explain them with a whole story or illustration every time also, it's distracting when preachers start too far back at the beginning. Um, so, so there was a, a popular preacher here in Cambridge many years ago who was great at the very long philosophical, historical, doctrinal, hmm. whatever, introduction. And the fascinating first 10 minutes of his 50-minute sermon would be fascinating. Um, and then you'd see how he was then getting from that to the text and, you know, brilliant. And, you, and he could do that really well. And, but, but sometimes that's a massive distraction in a service where um, we've been talking from the beginning about how we're going to hear God speak. 
Um, we prayed. We, we sing a song like, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. You know, we've sung that song. Um, then the preacher stands up and he prays, Lord, please help us understand what you've got to say from your word today. And then the first 10 minutes of the sermon is a long story about something mm. else, which tangentially leads on to the text. Well, I feel like I've been, oh, oh they're going to feed me, they're going to feed me. And then the first 10 minutes of the sermon is, I've got to wait. Oh, um, it's distracting. It's a distraction. Um, I think I think you're right. I think as well, it almost gives the impression that the preacher's thinking, look, the reading's not enough. The mm. Bible's not interesting enough. I'm going to yeah. have to sort of, you know, sort this out a bit to try to try and make it interesting. And it, yes, it, it, make it interesting. Yes, yes, a good Bible teacher will make it interesting. No, a preacher will show you that the Bible already is interesting, more interesting mm. and arresting and startling than you ever realised. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> At the same no, time, think... we need to not make it too complicated, which is my next point. Don't be too complicated, Lee. I always say to myself, and people like JC Ryle um, are really good on this, banging home this point about simplicity. Mm. Uh, you know, George Whitfield, um, you know, was a very clever man, but his preaching could be understood by anybody who was sitting in his congregation or standing in a field where he was preaching because it was so simple and straightforward, dealing with complicated things, but in a simple way. And that that's true intelligence. If you want to show off your intelligence, don't be too complicated. Be mm. simple, but deep. And if you can do that um, while teaching and preaching God's word, brilliant. Richard that takes Baxter, work. Uh, well, that takes more work. Yeah, you've, got, you've got to understand the concept because I yeah. often think when people use that theological term, it's frankly it's because they don't understand what that means, and so they yes. haven't used the term as a shorthand rather than just say what it means. Yeah, yeah, mm. um, absolutely. R Richard Baxter, a yeah, Puritan yeah. from the 17th century, said that um, the vicar should always um, always have something too complicated in his sermon for the congregation to understand. Otherwise, they'll think they don't need him and that they know it all already, um, which I don't agree with. I, um, I can see why he said that. He wants people to feel that it's, um, it's not below them and they can be stretched. There's more for them to know. Mm. That's probably what he was getting at. But sometimes we take that um, sort of advice and make it too complicated just because we want people to know how clever we are and that we've read this book or that book or know big words that end in shun. Um, but, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. I try and preach, and I've said this to my kids, I try and preach so that a 15-year-old will understand everything I say, even though I know and, my congregation might contain people who are more intelligent, who hopefully will see depths in what I've said that the 15-year-old might not see. But the 15-year-old won't ever think this is too complicated for me to understand. And I think that's a, a very important... I mean, when I was in Cheltenham, which obviously isn't as educated as Cambridge. So I would say a 12-year-old because, you know, obviously <laughs> I used to say to my congregation there. Because I I can remember arriving at a, at a church as a, to be their minister there and one of the issues they'd identified was that the children, and we had lots of children at the church and growing up through the church, they'd go to university and then they wouldn't attend church. And it was a cause of great pain, as you'd understand, mm. for the parents that that happened. And... I sort of sat with this and thinking this through for a, a little while and then I suddenly realised that, well, but they've never been to church 
anyway because they were always upstairs for the Sunday school. Or then the youth group used to meet during the sermon upstairs as well. So why would you expect them to go to church when they've never been in the church for services? They'd always been sent out to their groups. So I then would made a promise with my the deacons, this is a Baptist church, saying, look, I'm going to preach so that I think any secondary school child can understand it, but yeah. I want every secondary school child to be sat in church so that they're brought up in the church so that when they go to university, they're used to church and it's the kind of thing they want to do. And I think part of that simplicity is acknowledging that ideally the congregation is the whole family of God. It's not just the grown-ups or the adults, but the child should be able to be part of the congregation as well. I'm, I'm just about to launch off topic, so I'm going to shut up now, otherwise I'll start talking about <laughs> what's the influence of Sunday schools on the lack of young people in the church. No, well, well, that's a good, <laughs> a good question, maybe for another time. So I think there is a, don't be too complicated, but the flip side is don't patronise either. So we can speak True. in language that a, that a 13-year-old or whatever could understand, but you know, your congregation will also contain intelligent people. I mean, here in Cambridge, for example, you know, my, the congregation here is full of PhDs and people who are very clever at engineering and computing and theology, maybe, and all sorts of other things. And there'll be people who have serious jobs, uh, teachers who have to read a lot and, and do know what they're talking about. They've got to be stretched as well. So don't patronise mm. them with the illustrations you use or by thinking you always have to have a picture or balloons or something. Um, or a you know, puppet. It, or a puppet in your adult talk. You don't. I mean, they have their place in the children's talk maybe, but you don't need that kind of thing to teach an adult congregation or the mixed congregation. Don't patronise them. There is more in the text than they know. And you might be able to take them a level on, but don't do it in a way that's too complicated. So don't be too complicated, but don't patronise as well. I guess my final thing that you've also alluded to is don't leave it hanging. Don't leave the sermon as just, you know, and may God bless this sermon and help us all understand how it might apply to us. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Or just, and I hope you'll all go away and think about how this all might apply to you. Um, no, <laughs> don't do that. I, again, George Whitfield is my example on this. So as he's preaching every single sermon, he's calling for a response. You can't mm. sit through one of his sermons um, in the 18th century and think that you don't have to go away and do something. There's always and an that, implication, an impact. Don't leave it hanging in your sermon. Tell them what the impact should be. And, and his preaching ministry was pretty good, wasn't it, Whitfield? I seem to remember that one or two people came to hear him. What didn't two, make you unpopular. Yes, yeah, might have set the world on fire somewhat uh, in, the, in the 18th century. Um, Yes. So and I think he's a good example because uh, Jesus does that in his preaching. Moses did that in his preaching. Um, uh, Paul, Peter, whoever in the New Testament, they, they don't leave things hanging. They, they bring it home. And we, that doesn't mean we have to have an altar call, partly because we don't believe in altars, of course, um, except the one that we have in heaven. Um, but uh, we, we don't have to have everyone get up out of your seat and come forward or... Um, it doesn't have to be the same old things either. Read your Bible more, give more, evangelise more, and be holy. Isn't that the the, the main That'll things? Do. It's always read your Bible more, pray more, be holy, give more to the church, and evangelise. Sign a it's gift those, aid form. Yes, those five points or something. Um, and or oh, six point join church society. Um, don't make it so boring and predictable, but don't, don't leave it hanging. If if you want people to go away feeling joy, well then make sure your sermon produces joy 
Don't just mm. I think you should all go away and feel that joy of the Lord. Goodbye. Amen. Um, try and, you know, make sure the sermon produces joy um, and so on and so forth and what have you. Here's, here's a random question, Lee. It just occurred to me. Do you, as you're doing this great itinerant ministry as a modern-day Wesley, do you <laughs> seek to try and choose what might be sung after the sermon? The old Baptist pattern was that yeah. the visiting preacher would not only choose the sermon, uh, well, obviously preach the sermon rather, but would also choose the hymn after the sermon. Do, is that something that happens in Anglican circles? Yes, I love doing that. I mean, often when I'm preparing a sermon, I, uh, I'll have a hymn going around my head um, as to you know what I think should be sung um, as I am concluding, and I'll try and pass that on. If I have any say, I will often suggest some um, particular hymns or songs that might be good for the end. So I've got I've got into I don't do that necessarily so much, but I've got really into hymns. Spurgeon's so I've got own hymn book. Hymn book I'm, I'm holding okay. up back to front, probably on the screen, and it's amazing that. They're, because they're poetry, obviously. And th this that, that hymn book was the one that Spurgeon put together for the tabernacle back in the day. But it's got useful scripture and disease at the back and all that kind of stuff. And often when you're making a point that you can use hymn words that people will know. I was taught, I was preaching on, on Sunday evening about um, the fact that quite often we haven't got a clue what God's going on about. You know, that, that bit in Paul where he talks about oh, the, the inscrutableness of, of God's wisdom and then in... Um, in Romans and beyond our understanding. And I, and I said to the congregation, well, how, how can we say that we can ever get to the bottom of all of this? How can we ever say that we can fully understand God, who is the potentate of time, the creator, oh. you know, and so these things. But it, it's yeah. great to be able to use some hymns in all of that as well. Anyway, mm -hmm. I could wax lyrical. I suppose your 11th commandment is keep it to time, is it? Uh, when it keep comes it to, to time, preaching. always. Yes. <laughs> yes. If they give you five minutes, take five minutes. If they give you 20, don't go on for 22. <laughs> so that may be a good prompt for us then to sort of, to finish our little sort of bit on preaching, to announce the next hymn and take up the collection. Metaphorically, <laughs> of course. Amen. Thank you, Amen. Chris. Join us again next time um, at some stage next week. We shall see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. <laughs>